0: So I don't have one text tonight because I really want to ask you one question as we approach this subject of identity: is who are you? And I don't I don't simply mean who are you like I'm I'm Aaron or and you just state your name. If you have to think about who you are on the deepest level, on the most realist level, on On a plane besides simply knowing your address and your name and your family history, who are you? Who are you? Because if you know anything about our day and age, if you know anything about living in America, it's this. We have an identity problem in America. We have an identity problem in this nation. And we have an identity problem within the church. We are a people in crisis of trying to identify with something, of trying to associate our lives with something, and a people in crisis in identity is a people who are doomed to fall. Not knowing who you are is detrimental to your life. If you think a nation doesn't know who it is, it's because there are people, individuals who make up that nation, who make up the church, who don't know who they are in Jesus Christ. They don't even know who they are as human beings. And so ask yourself one more time, who are you? When you think of the proverbial question that everybody asks in a job, what's your five-year plan? And I guarantee you, every time you get asked that, you get stopped in your tracks. you the words stop coming to your mouth. You have never really thought about five years. That's a long time away. I can tell you in five years, I've gone from, I've been married five years, almost from single, to married, to three kids, to living in a place I never thought I would live. So to ask you, what's your plan in the next five years? What's your plan in 10 years? What are you doing to work towards that plan right now? How about 20 years, 30 years? Are you even thinking that far ahead? And the point of it is this, Someone who has thought that far ahead in life is somebody who knows who they are. They know where they're going. They understand the road before them. They understand the path. Now, they may not know every ditch and turn and nook and cranny, but I tell you this, they're prepared to go down that road. But if you don't have any answer to that question, you're not prepared at all. Not only are you not prepared to go down that road, you don't even have the equipment to do so. And we ought not to think that the Christian life is any different than how we would hopefully try to live a normal life. See, we've talked about this before, and I've emphasized this, and I will continue to emphasize this down here. Your life outside of here and inside of here are not separated. The way that you plan for things within the world, your job, school, family, business, whatever may be, ought to be an outflow of your spiritual life. You see, if you're the person in life who can plan everything, all your T's are crossed, all your I's are dotted, and then your spiritual life looks like you're just picking up pieces that are just on the floor because they're never put together. There's no understanding. There's no organizational to it. Something is wrong, deeply wrong. If we can plan out everything in our life, but our spiritual lives are a mess. If our spiritual lives, if that mess on the floor that we call our spiritual life shows us that we really don't have any root or understanding of who we are in Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you what, I would rather you fumble a job around, I would rather you fumble a business around, and I would rather you struggle in fumbling your family around as you learn, but know who you are in Jesus Christ. To know what it means to identify with Jesus Christ, so that when you talk about your identity, you can say, I identify with Jesus Christ. He's my identity. He is what I live for. He is what I embrace every single day. He's what I get up in the morning for. He's what I go to bed for. He's everything. But but what does that mean? Because if we wish to see this country at all or anywhere, if we ever plan on sending missionaries anywhere, if we hope or pray or even have the, the, the courage to do so, We need to ask ourselves first, if we as a people here don't know who we are, we got no business sending people out to the mission field. We got no business building up churches in Las Vegas. We have no business going around telling other people, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, but I don't know who I am as a Christian. I don't know what my identity is rooted in as a Christian. I don't know where my life's going as a Christian. So that's what I want to give you tonight. I want to give you a nice broad brush of scripture tonight because as many of us are in here whether young old been a Christian a little bit a long time you need the breadth of scripture to start filling in those things for you because how did you form your identity before you became a Christian did you just do it overnight did you go hey I'm just going to start planning out what my identity is writing it out like a book and then man the morning time you got a 20 page manual on your identity it was years of habits of decisions, of desires, of wants, till one day you're there. Now, it may have been lost you, it may have been you not saved, but you had an identity. And all of you who just got baptized, you would tell us you had an identity in something. Nobody is neutral. Everybody has built their life up towards something, whether consciously or not, by things that they do all the time, and by believing certain things about themselves. And so if we as a people, church list, if we as a people are going to know what it means to be a Christian, I want you to know confidently as we just sang that you would know who you are in Jesus Christ, that you would know what that means, you would understand the answer to it and not just be able to say, I'm a Christian, what does that mean? and then there's nothing there there's there's no foundation there's no substance to that and so I want to be able to give that to you tonight as you ask that question to yourself who are you who are you so I'm going to argue three points with subpoints underneath but I'm going to say there's three indispensable truths there's going to be a lot I'm not going to hit there's a lot of things we could talk about that identify somebody as a Christian and what their identity consists of. But I'm going to give you three indispensable truths we have to embrace if we are going to know who we are and what we're doing. Who we are as Christians. How do we rest in who we are in order to know then what we do? Because it'll do you no good also if I give you a bunch of stuff to do and you still have not grounded yourself in who you are. Because the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible comes to you just as we read that passage from Exodus. And what does he tell the people? Does he pull them out of Egypt and say, all right, here's, here's, your, here's the whole law. Here's all the lists laid out before you. Now just do. No, he says, do you remember that I am the Lord your God who redeemed you out of Egypt, who brought you out of the land of slavery, and I've made you a what? Priests, a holy nation that you would be holy. Now go and be holy. Holy. God gives you an identity, church. He gives it to you, and you need to know what it is. If you want to live out the Christian life in the highs and lows, your identity is going to matter a whole lot. In fact, it's going to be the only thing that's going to keep you up in the lows, and it's the only thing that's going to humble you in the highs. So, three indispensable truths. Here's what we're gonna go through tonight. Three indispensable truths. We're gonna, we need to ask three questions as we're talking about what is Christian identity means? What does it mean to identify with Jesus Christ? Three things. So, first one, what we are. We have to ask the question, what are we now as Christians? What does that even mean? I'm a Christian. What does that mean? What are we? Second point, who are we? Okay. So now that I'm a Christian, and I know several truths about that, how does that affect me personally? Because I don't know about you, I don't look like some of you, okay? Even the people who are pasty like me and short like me, I don't look like you either. So you have to know, I'm a Christian, but how does that actually affect me personally? How does that affect Aaron? How does that affect, you know, Balmok or Jessica or Maritza or Manny? How does that affect you? Who are you, now that you know what you are. And then the last one is going to be, why are we here? Why are, why are, so if we're Christians and we're saved and we're coming into this identity, what's the purpose? Is there a purpose for it? Or is being a Christian just like moving from one thing to the next thing? I floated from this side of this life and I just happened to land on Christianity and now I'm just a Christian. So we're going to answer those three things. What are we? Who are we? Why are we? Or to put it simpler, why are we here? So the first one, first point, indispensable truth you must know about your identity is what are we? So if you're going to know how to live in this world, if you're going to know how to identify with Jesus Christ and to embrace an identity that you have been given by God, you need to know deeply and intimately what that is. And I'll tell you the only way you're going to be able to know that. You must be in the Word. No other way you're going to know. No other way you're going to build yourself up into what God has already made you to be unless you are in the Word. And I want you to consider two categories that the Bible gives us as Christians for how we are to understand what are we now as Christians. You know how do, we, how do we sum all that up to make it easy so I don't have to pour through you know a hundred verses, and here's those two things. First one, you're dead to yourself. Or to say, you're dead to the old you. You know we, we talked about this in the last couple of weeks. Baptism is a symbol. It doesn't do it. It's a symbol of you dying to yourself because you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, so that when you go under the water, it is really you going down into death. The person who goes down is not the same person who comes up out of the waters. Aaron died. He's dead. Manny asked it last week, When have you died? I'll tell you when you died. When you placed your faith in Jesus Christ and your baptism symbolized it. So the Bible tells you, you're dead to yourself. So 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 7, hear this. He's speaking to the church there, and this church has lots of problems. Lots of problems. Some problems you would think, could they even be a church with all these problems? They are. They're a church. These are Christians. Here's what he says. Verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So without getting into the weeds on that one, what are the What's the indispensable truth in here for why you ought to cleanse out the old leaven? Is it because if you do so, you'll become new leaven? Cleanse out the old and become new? He says, cleanse out the old that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. You see, the reason they're boasting is no good as a church, the reason they're boasting as the church in Corinth is not good, is because they're God's church. Boasting is like keeping old leaven. And it defiles you. And it spreads. And you think about the, the parable that Jesus said, you can read this later too to believe me, Jesus talks about, how the kingdom of God is like a leaven in a a loaf. And that leaven is going to spread and permeate the entire loaf. Well, here it's bad. Here, to not cleanse out the old leaven means it will contaminate all of it. And the problem with that is because you really are unleavened already. Cleansing it out does not make you a Christian. It does not make you clean. And so... The, the foundation, the thing that you should give from that, instead of hearing, oh, he's telling me to do something, he is telling you who you are. And the question is, do you believe that in the midst of your sin? When you find yourself unable to cleanse out the old leaven, and you are defiled by sin, is the first thing that you think of, God won't accept me, and I won't be that new leaven until I cleanse it out. Your Christian life will not last very long. Believe what God says about a church who this church had problems. This church had family members sleeping together. They were coming together and drinking and eating from the poor and getting drunk at their meetings. This church was boasting in their own wisdom. This church had Idols of preachers in there. I follow this person. I follow this person. And yet he comes to them and he says, listen, you cleanse out the old leaven that you made me a new lump. You would do so because you're already unleavened. And you should take encouragement in that. That's your identity. And the point of it is this. You're already dead. You've been made unleavened. So die to that. You see, the one came before the other to make the other possible. Die, you have died, now continue to die. You've been made holy, now continue to live holy. You've been saved, now continue to live as you've been saved. It's never the other way around. And, and I know we have preached that and sought to press that on you, but you need to understand that the reason it is, is because we're telling you who... And that, let me rephrase that. I'm not telling you. God is telling you that's your identity as a Christian You really are unleavened. You have been cleansed. Now cleanse out the old leaven. Have nothing to do with it. Why? You've died to it. It's gone. Don't let it permeate. Christ, your Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Look back unto Him. Know that in Christ you are made clean. Very similar point. Flip to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, here's what Paul says, what shall we say then? Okay, So he's now he's saying, here's this big climactic ending to the end of chapter 5. We've been saved by God. We've been saved for God. God did all of the work. And then what does he say? To, he asks a rhetorical question here. What shall we say then? Are we, Christians, to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who died to sin... For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, what's what's the imperative and the command for you? Where is it found? It's found all the way at the end. Verse 11, everything that came before. Shall we continue to sin now that we've been saved? By no means. How can we? If you have died, why would you live unto it anymore? Notice the past tense. You have died. You have been buried with Christ in baptism. Jesus Christ has raised you to newness of life. And because He's done so, He'll make sure that you make it to the end. Then the imperative comes. So then you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Hear that. That's your identity, dead to sin. Been made dead to sin by God Himself. So read this one as well Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, 3 through 5. So notice the order and think about what He's saying. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, purity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So I start at the end on purpose. Because what do you hear? Put to death, therefore. Did he say, put to death and you will be a Christian? Put to death and you'll have your identity secure? Put to death and you can know that you're doing all right before God? No. Go back to verse 3. For you have died. You, Christian, have died. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. Verse 4, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So who are you, Christian? Well, you should be able to answer the first thing, I'm dead to my old self. That's my identity. Want to know the first thing about your identity? Dead to old self. Dead to Aaron. Aaron is dead. He's gone. He doesn't get to hang around. And God did it. Therefore, I, you, we can put to death what is earthly in us. Second point of what we are. If we're dead, we've been made alive. We have been made alive. So, the second one if you're dead to yourself, you are alive to God. To put it simpler, you're God's. Turn to Romans 8, Romans chapter 8, 16 to 17. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our Spirit, speaking of us, that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So notice the same thing. The condition to suffer amongst the people of God for Jesus Christ is grounded in the fact that you are God's child. What does he say? and this would actually be better rendered this way, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are sons of God, or daughters of God. We're sons. We are gods. I am just as much and more of God's child than my child is to me. We are God's children. Positive identity first and foremost as a Christian. You're God's Child. You're his child. Your spirit testifies with you that you're his. And if you're his child, you're an heir to all things. Not just the spiritual, but the whole world. You're an heir to all of it with Christ. And so we can go on in that suffering because we're his, we're his children, we're his sons, we're his daughters. But the point is is He grounds it in your identity. Do you actually think you're God's child? Or do you think coming to the Christian faith was just another step in, in a process or and just an, another way to improve your life? And I tell you, it's, it's, a, it's not a step process. It's going from death to life. There's no step. You're dead. The old one is dead. The new one is alive. And He calls you a child. And what do you think of A child. Anyone has a, a child in here. Do you ever want your child to think, I don't know if dad's gonna like me today? And I don't know if mom's gonna accept me today. And maybe you had parents like that. And you knew in your heart when your parent treated you like that, that's not right. Nobody looks at bad parents and says, I just don't know. You know, it's like, no. God is implanted into the heart of every every human being, whether you had a good family or no family, when you see a good father and a good mother, you know it. I bet if I turn a video on right now, we watched a video of that mom and their, you know, their boys and that one, you know, there's the one girl in the family, and dad's flying home on a private airplane that nobody knew about. And he's coming home from the war, and he gets off the airplane and he hits the runway and he comes through that door, and those kids go flying to him, and that mom bursts into tears. The reason we all weep and cry, yes, man, I'm talking about you too. Those tears come. The reason they do is because God's put in you the idea that those are His kids. That's His wife. That's who He loves. And they were separated. Now they've been brought together united. That's His children. That's His family. And you think you being God's children is any less. You're God's child. That's your new identity. Don't let the devil or anybody else tell you differently because he does. And Paul goes on in Romans to say this. What then shall we say to these things of what he's just said? If God is for us his children, who can be against us? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. So then, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, nothing. You're God's. You're His child. And in all these things, He says, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Why? Because we're not just conquerors. We're His heirs. It is the King who gives wonderfully to his sons, everything he has conquered. We are heirs. We have received it all. And the most important, we have received God's favor himself. Do you believe that? Is that your identity? Do you actually believe that I, as a Christian, now have God's favor? He looks upon me as a child, never to cast me out, never to lose out of his hand. Do you believe it? Because the problem with I... Our identity crisis, not just in this country, but within the churches, because we don't believe that. You think about the cancel culture going on in our country right now. Everyone's great. Everything's going well. And you say one wrong thing. And what happens? It all comes down. It's like a house of cards. And a house of cards built on sand to make it even worse. One thing gets said, and people eat you up. And you see people pandering and kissing and trying to do all sorts of things to get their identity back. Because it was built upon sand, built with cards. And the Christian life is not lived like that. That is not our relationship to God. God is not the world telling us what to think, what to believe. And then when we slip up once, it all comes down. No, He's a father to us. We're his children. And when we mess up, he wants to see us run to him the same way if we had distanced ourselves from our father and he opens his arm to us once again and you run after him. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 3. Consider this. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, speaking of Jesus, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Do you understand who you are? Even in the midst of your sin, are you suffering consequences for your sin? Because there's consequences to sin, even in the Christian life. I'm sorry, it doesn't go away. Sin has consequences, but to have consequences as a Christian and in the church is a blessing. It means you're God's son and daughter. For God to chastise you and to discipline you even at your lowest as a Christian is a great comfort to you. He says consider it that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted because if that's happening to you in your struggle against sin, know that it's because God treats you as a son and no good father ever lets his son wallow in unbelief. Nevers allow him to roll around in the mud and come up dirty. He always cleanses. He always cleans. He always disciplines. And that's for your comfort. It's for your comfort. 1 Peter chapter 2. I want you to just hear these next two. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Here's what he speaks of again. I want you to think of that uh, Old Testament reading we just read from Exodus. Now who's he talking to in this New Testament letter? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous life. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy do you see yourself like that? A royal priest for God? A chosen race, a holy nation, a people for His own possession? Do you see yourself as a treasure in which God went out and bought even though you were unlovely and you were unredeemable by every stretch of the imagination, and yet God did it? And He made you to be a possession for Himself of something of worth, of value, so that you would be His holy people for His glory. Nothing to do in that one. That's just who you are. So who are you? Are you a chosen race? A royal priesthood? A holy nation? Are those the things you're beginning to build your Christian life on? If you have not, or if you have not done that in years, you need to do it today. Start Pouring over Scripture and read who you are in Jesus Christ. Know who you are in Jesus Christ so that when trials come and when discipline comes and when the temptation to puff yourself up in pride because you think you're walking well, you come and remember, I was saved by God and He's made me His own. To keep you from pride and arrogance and to keep you... From pitying yourself, to keep you from wallowing in sorrow, to remind you, you are Christ's. You're God's in time, in space, not just a theory. You're God's, Christian. He'll never let you go. Doesn't matter what you wallow in, doesn't matter if you stain with sin, He is here to cleanse. If you would call back upon Him and run back to Him as a father, just as a son and a daughter runs to their father every time. So you're dead to yourself. You were gods. That's what we are. So second point. Moving on to our second point. Who are we? So as Christians, if we are, if what we are is dead to sin and we're gods, then who are we? How does that now come in and start impacting me? Because here's the hang up, I think, for a lot of Christians. We 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 hear these truths. And I want you to be reminded of them because they're the foundation. But we hear these and we go, that's great. What does that look like practically? You know, I I remember 19, God say Is some of you, this would be interesting to know. I, I got saved first year of college, probably over a year span. And I know it got confirmed as I'm walking at UNLV on the same, you know, same little strip that you all probably have walked down before. And someone hands me a track and asks me if I'm born again. I thought, I haven't thought much about that question, but I know what Jesus says about that. Yeah, I'm born again. God saved me. But then my, my issue was what does that look like for me as a 19 year old man who's single? Like, what, what does that actually mean? That, okay, I got my identity in Jesus Christ, but how does that affect me? How do I begin to live that out? Because we did see there, there are things to do as a Christian, they don't make you a Christian. You get firmly planted as a child of God, but then the child of God walks. He begins to learn how to walk. God says, be imitators of me. Be be children of the light. Begin to walk. So I want to answer that for you. How do you begin to walk? Who are we? What does that mean for you you as a man or as a woman or as a husband or a father or singled or widowed or whatever your case may be? So here's your first thing. Who are we? First and foremost, this is going to seem very foundational again, but you got to start here. You're an image bearer of God. So as you think of yourself as an individual, you need to begin thinking of yourself. This Genesis 1 and 2. God created male and female in His image, in His own image. He created them. And the fact that you have any kind of worth, any kind of value, any kind of dignity, if you're to think of yourself in a positive light, to build your life up for Jesus Christ because you're in Him, you have to start there. If you want to know how to encounter people who will come and try to dissuade you of that, when you start encountering people who think they are literally just stardust, or they're literally just evolved protoplasms, or whatever the case may be, whatever fantasy people believe, you're an image bearer of God. That is who you are. You bear God's image. And because you have been joined unto Jesus Christ, the Bible says you have been made a new creation, you have been re-imaged into the image of who? Jesus Christ. The one whom He has predestined you to look like is Jesus Christ Himself. You want to know who you are? Well, now you don't look just at Genesis 1 and 2. It's true, but now you look at Jesus Christ who's the fulfillment of all that. He is the image of God, and that is now who we are in Jesus Christ. So that's the first point. We are image bearers of God. And the second point is going to seem even simpler, but I tell you that in this day and age, this is not a simple point. Here's the second one. Who are we in Jesus Christ now that we have our identity in Him? We're men and women. We are men and we are women. So yes, we've been made image bearers of God, but what did He create them like? He made just copies of each other, of the same same sex, the same person, no... He makes image bearers, and He does a distinct thing. He makes them male, and He makes them female. And that is not something you're going to get in our culture. That's not something, if you've grown up, if you've been anywhere around my age or younger growing up, that is not something that you were ever, ever taught to believe, that somehow being a man and being a woman, one, are two different things, and that those differences are glorious. What is going to be pushed upon you, and what has been pushed even into the church, is this tried-to melding of men and women together, to where there is no distinction. And we wonder why the church has an identity crisis. We wonder why people don't know how to come into the church. We wonder why that the vast majority of people coming to the church and staying are women, and why most men want nothing to do with the church. And I'm telling you that one of the reasons why is because we have forsaken the fact that God made distinct sexes, yes, unified, yes, equal in worth and value before God, but different in their roles and different in the glory that they possess. Yes, men and women bear glory before God, all to His glory, but it is a different glory that they bear because they bear different responsibilities. And this is something that we got to recover within the church. We want to see churches thrive, We want to see ministries thrive. We want to see men who come up into the pulpit thrive. We want to see people in the seats thrive. We need to remind them that if you're a man or if you're a woman, God has given you glory in being a man and has given you glory in being a woman. You do not need to try to be a man or try to be a woman or to cross the two or mix them in order to think that there's more glory to be found there. When in fact, there's nothing but confusion and an identity crisis. Because imagine this. God makes men and women, makes them distinct to be together, to work together, but distinct. And then when we try to meld it, we wonder why there's an identity crisis. Well, God made us distinct for a reason. When you read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and he makes them male and female, it's not an accident. Male and female is not just some arbitrary thing God's like, all right, let me see how I'm going to do this image-making thing. All right, male and you know, female, and just to throw the dice and boom, that's what we got. It's not an arbitrary decision, as the world would tell you to be. Oh, man, you know, there's cultural things for men and cultural things for women, but really, we're all the same. No. If you identify with Jesus Christ, we are not running away from Genesis 1, 1 and 2. We're coming back to it in Jesus Christ. That's what we fell away from. You see, what was Adam to do in the garden in Genesis? He was to protect Eve. He was to work the ground and till it. He was to keep it and to guard it. And what did he not do? He did not keep it. He did not guard it. And his wife was the one who was caused to sin first. And so even from the beginning, we realize that the roles and the distinctions of men and women were fallen right from the beginning because of sin. But those distinctions are good. They're good things. So I want to I want to read a couple of things to you so you kind of get this idea, this broad overview, because I could talk a lot about this, but I can't spend all my time on this. But I want you to hear a broad overview of what we think about and what we should begin to start cultivating within our lives about men and about women and how that ultimately is going to come into the life of the church and outside of the church. So first, manhood. Men, Genesis 1 and 2 establishes several facts. One, men were to be the primary leaders, and men were to lead out in ruling and keeping God's work. So in Genesis 1, God makes man male and female. What are they supposed to do? They're to have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living creature. And then Genesis 2, who does he plant into the garden and tells, you are to keep and guard and to spread this garden over the face of the earth? He tells Adam, tells Adam to do it. And so men were made to be God's rulers and to be God's keepers and to be God's protectors over the face of the earth. We see this picked up in Exodus 32. And I'm just going to read this for you. I want you to hear this. Exodus 32. Exodus 32, 25-29. So Israel's just fallen into sin. Moses comes down after receiving the Ten Commandments from God. He finds them in idolatry. Here's what happens. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, meaning they had gone off into disobedience, for Aaron, not me, different Aaron, for Aaron had let them break loose to their derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons... Hear that. Some of your translations might not have that, but I'm telling you, this is important. Does he call all the women to come unto him? Does he call like, hey, bring your families with your kids and your wives with you? No, he says, listen, sons of Levi, come unto me. If you love the Lord, come unto me. What does he tell them? Verse 27, he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side each of you and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, In that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. So the point that we need in this... go. Past all of the finer details is this just as Adam was to be that role in the garden he was supposed to protect he was supposed to keep the place holy he should have kicked that serpent out of the garden when the devil came in to deceive them and Israel's to do the same thing now sin comes into the camp who gets called on to protect the camp the men the sons of Levi are to come in they're to lead they're to obey God They're coming to rule, and to keep, and to guard, and to protect, and to provide. And when God says to do it, they do it. And then if you think about flipping over to David, you think about flipping over to the kings... The king was once again this this picture of what Adam back in the garden was supposed to be. He's supposed to be this this one who rules after God's own heart. He protects the people, provides for the people, rules over the people so that God's kingdom does well, that the people thrive, and then he falls too. And in the Psalms and in the Proverbs, what are the first words of the Proverbs too? What is, what is the king? It says that they're Proverbs of Solomon, the king. Who's he whispering them to me? He says, hear these words, my son. So hear, hear this, though. In the Proverbs, it also says, here's the words of your mother. So I'm only covering men right now. Don't worry, ladies, we're getting we're getting to you next. There's a lot that scripture has for you. My emphasis, though, is to say this, and we ought not to back away from this as Christians, even though the culture would press us to do so. Men have been made First and foremost, primary, to lead, to rule, and to protect, not women. If women are out front leading, ruling, protecting, and providing, we got things backwards. We got them backwards. Which is why when the church has introduced women preachers and all sorts of things into the church, we wonder why the church itself is finding itself in an identity crisis and doesn't know what it means to be a Christian and identify with Jesus Christ. Because we have gotten something so basic as men and women wrong, and that you can go and just look outside into the culture. We had someone live two down, you know, two doors down not too long ago, who though they're a man thought themselves to be a woman. And I can guarantee you, it doesn't matter what they tell you, what they say on their you know, with their smile or their facial expressions, there is deep hurt and twistedness and sin because of something that has been so twisted and perverted that God has made for our benefit. You see, God did not make men and women different for us to go, that sucks, God, I don't get to do that, or I don't get to be like him, or I don't get to be like her. It was so that we would have enjoyment. And so who we are, men, if you're sitting in this room, embrace that. Embrace the fact that you have been made a man. Embrace responsibilities that come with it to lead, to rule, to protect. And those things are going to look different. It's going to look different for somebody who's not married. It's going to look different for somebody who is single. It's going to look different for somebody who is 20 years in marriage versus somebody ready to get married. The point of it, though, is the truth doesn't change. At each moment, you were called as a man to function in those capacities. And for women, Genesis 1 and 2 is the start as well. Men are not not superheroes. It says that there was no suitable partner for the man in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And so God needed to create the woman for, for her to be a help to the man because he couldn't do it himself. So this should, one, humble men into thinking they are not overlords of women, and two, to remind women that they are vital and needed in doing what God commanded human beings to do all along. Spread across the face of the earth, and in doing so, have dominion over it, and what we are doing now as Christians, spreading the gospel all over the face of the earth. Women are just as needed as men. But those roles look different. Just as Eve was not called to guard and protect and to provide into the, in the garden, so too women are not called to be on the front lines of the battle of the church. They're not called to take the tip of the spear. They're not called to charge headlong. What are they called to do? Helpers and cultivators, cultivating the things that God has placed men and women to do, to help men in their positions and in their roles, whether in the house or within the church, for women to come along and to nurture and to care for. Or you think of women in Scripture as battles are won. Who's the first people to often be singing in Scripture in the Old Testament? The men? No, it's the women. The women are leading in the praise and leading in the worship as God's enemies are defeated and they're come crashing down. As the people of God experience blessing, it is the praises and the songs of the women that make it so that the men in the people's faces not lifted down but are lifted up towards God. They are helpers, they are cultivators, they're nurturers, they're worshipers. And the Bible says this too: that they're gentle. That they're submissive, not submissive to any type of abuse. Let me make that clear. Submission for women and for men is always unto God. Paul says in Ephesians that the church is submitted unto the Christ, therefore, the woman should be submitted to her husband. What, out of fear? No, out of love. Out of love. But we have to recognize these differences, church. We have to recognize, and I am not trying to paint in every detail what a woman or a man is supposed to do. What I'm simply trying to say is we're never going to get down that road if we can't begin here. If we can't begin to say, look, God's made me a man and God's made me a woman. And we do not embrace everything that the Bible says come along with that. You can forget all the particulars you want. You can forget of knowing your identity in Jesus Christ because you're rejecting it. If you are rejecting the roles and the distinctions God has given you as a man or a woman, then you're rejecting your identity. It hasn't changed in Jesus Christ. He has saved it. He's renewed it, but He didn't erase it. So embrace that. Embrace being an image bearer, but also embrace the fact that you're a man or a woman who who has God's image. So third thing, age and season of life. Scripture has a lot to say to different aspects of life. And this is when we begin asking who we are. Okay, now we're starting to get some bearings. Okay, I'm an image bearer. I've been made a man, a woman who's been redeemed. There are certain things God has built into both of those, designed them to function like. Okay, that's great. But now this is going to start changing. Now... Now, you know, because how does this look for an 8-year-old? How does this look for a 16-year-old? How does this look for a 25-year-old or a 40-year-old or a 65-year-old? Whatever the case may be, age is going to come in and, and determine one of these factors of you need to start thinking in your life, where has God have me now? And not simply location, but where am I in life? And, you know, if, if you're 16... You may not need to be thinking, well, how am I going to best serve my wife this day or that? It's like, no, 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 Slow down. How are you to serve the Lord now? You think of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is good and right. This is the first commandment with a promise. So God addresses, even for someone like a child, how, how can you begin to root yourself in identity that matters? Well, you start telling your children this. Obey your parents in the Lord. He promises blessing with it. You want to know why children grow up with identity issues? Is because, one, they probably rejected this. They don't obey their parents in the Lord. And probably because their parents don't demand that they obey them in the Lord. But we wonder why families are a mess. If we would come unto Jesus Christ and believe His promises and children would obey out of love for God and love for their parents. And, ch- and what does it say of fathers in that same chapter? And in Ephesians 6, it says, fathers, do not provoke your children in anger, but raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord in love. So parents, mothers, fathers, or even if you're single here in the church, you're going to be around other people who are younger. When we think about how do I begin rooting my identity? Have I embraced doing that? Or have I thought to myself, you know what, raising children, being a husband and a father, a wife and a mother, eh, I'm really looking for a different identity. I'm really looking to, I can get out of the house, maybe find a job, get myself rooted in something real. And the Bible says that's wrong. If you're a mother, vocation, work, probably some of the hardest work you can do. If you're a husband and a father, you got work cut out for you, man. Way harder than a pile of wood you got to chop when you get home and children, You find things like that of finding your identity in simple obedience. We make it so complicated, but it's simple obedience. I'm a child. I obey my parents out of fear and love for them and out of fear and love for God. And God promises to meet you with joy in your identity in doing that. You're a mother. You're a father. You're a wife. You're a husband. Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits unto Christ, and there's a promise you will find joy in your identity, single or widowed. Paul tells both of them, I wish that you would remain for now so that you would be able to run after Jesus Christ with no hindrances, and he promises you in there too joy in your identity in that now. Simple obedience, family. Simple obedience. But we are not willing to embrace who we are. We're not willing to embrace that we're a wife and a mother. We think it's found in something else. We're not willing to embrace ourselves being single or widowed or a husband or a father or if you're a child or a teenager. You think that it's got to be some complicated concoction where you put it all together, then your identity will come into existence. And that is just flat out wrong. It's a lie. Identity is found in what God has made you to be. And simple obedience will produce the fruit of that joy. So if you don't have it, here's how I can tell you how to do it. Do it. You don't have joy to sing these songs when we're done. You know what I'm going to tell you to do? Sing. You have a fear of your sin of being around other Christians because of the guilt and the shame that rightly comes with sin? You show up around other Christians because the Bible tells you that's how you get freed from it. It says, confess your sins to one another. Let the righteous person pray for you, and then you'll be lifted out of that sin. You don't want to read your word, what am I going to tell you to do? Read your word. What was that song we sang? Oh, my soul, arise. You ever talk to yourself like that? Soul, you're down. Get up. That's how the Bible talks. When you don't feel like it, you do it because God has simply made the formula of simple obedience, joy. They meet every single time. Church, If we don't believe that, we got no business telling people to come up to accept Jesus Christ, to fall down on their knees and to worship Him because we have no joy in simple obedience. So last point under this, who we are. We are maturing sons and daughters of God. And I want to read some scriptures on this. Turn to me with Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm going to be in Ephesians for a couple of verses, but hear this. Ephesians 4 9 through 16. Excuse me, I'm going to start at 10 because 9 is a really awkward place to start. So, he who descended, speaking of Jesus Christ, is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he, speaking of Jesus Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And what else are we doing? To mature manhood. To mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro, by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way unto him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see, that's who you are. How do you begin to start doing that, not just individually, but in the entirety of your life? You do it in church. You do it by meeting together, because as you do so, God has equipped you through the church to grow up into maturity. So if you're not growing up into maturity, one of the first things I'm going to ask you is, are you fellowshipping with the saints? Are you showing up on Sundays? Are you under the teaching of the word? And I can guarantee you, like I was when I was 20, forsaking the fellowship was not growing, not mature, not being built up in love, was not becoming a mature man. And notice what he says. He says that the body, as it's being built up, is what? Reaching perfect humanhood? No, he says manhood. Because there's that idea throughout Scripture that men, your responsibility is to grow up and to be men. It is not to grow up and stay in adolescence and to stay a boy your entire life. There's joy in maturing. There's joy in growing together. Yes, there will be pains. Yes, there's always growing pains. But there's joy to be found in growing up as a body the same way that a boy ought to find joy in growing up as a man. He tells the church, grow up into mature manhood so that you would be able to be presented to Him perfect without spot or wrinkle or blemish as a body that has grown up in love. So, who are you? You're a maturing son or daughter of God. You have to begin to start doing that through the church. Have to. So that's the second point. So what we are, who we are, and now for our last point, why we are. And if there's something that we are going to emphasize by God's grace or the future of this church, it is going to be this. It's that we are here. We exist as people, as a church, for one purpose. That is to see God's glory and God's gospel spread across the entire face of the earth so that when we look up at a map, we can say that's God's. That's, that's it. Because, look, I can tell you all day you're a Christian, dead to sin, alive to God. I can tell you, you're an image bearer. You're a man. You're a woman. You have different roles as a man, different roles and functions as a woman. You have different ages and seasons of life. You're maturing as you come and be built up by the body. But for what purpose? Is it just because? Are we just growing and maturing as Christians because we're like a, a, a pottery plant we buy as a hobby and we just water every once in a while just to watch it grow for fun? God has made us and saved us for one reason, and it's that reason alone. So that when you now start thinking of your identity, you have to start thinking of your identity as also what you have been put here to do because that's probably the hardest part for people. They get saved and they're like, "Okay, what do I do now? What what is God's will for me in my life? What am I begin to do to live this out?" Here's number 1, it trumps everything else. Everything has to flow into this. Job, kids, spouse, house, two cars, whatever you got in the American dream, it better flow into this. And so why are we here? We are here to see God's glory and God's fame and God's gospel spread across the whole world. That's what he's doing right now. Let me fly through that for you. I want to convince you that's what he's doing. So guess where we're going to be back in? Genesis 1 and 2. And you can flip there. You can listen because I want you to understand. And I'm going to keep repeating this. And I will harp on this all day. I don't care if this is my gravy train or not. I'm going to harp on it all day because this is what the Bible is all about and it's what your life ought to be about so that you have purpose and meaning and rooted in an identity because this is what history has been working itself towards the entire time. Genesis 1 and 2, what do we have? God makes human beings, He makes them in His image. What is their number one purpose? Have dominion, rule over the earth, spread across the face of the earth, fill it, subdue it. That was the goal Adam and Eve are planted in a garden in Genesis chapter 2. And he tells Adam to keep it, to cultivate it, to guard it. And Eve is supposed to come in and help him achieve that. But the whole purpose of this, if God's glory is in Eden, in that little garden, it's supposed to go out to the whole world. So that the whole world would be like God's garden. The whole world would have God's glory. The whole world would be covered by image bearers of God. And we know that didn't happen. We know that in the garden, what happens? The fall, sin, and the curse. And then the first promise is this, Genesis 3.15, that your seed will come and have enmity between the serpent's seed. That he, speaking of this one individual, will come and crush the serpent seed's head. And he will put an end to what the serpent brought about. But he'll do something greater. He'll reverse that curse. And as we keep reading through Genesis, what do we see? Abraham comes along, and Abraham is promised what? A land, a people, a nation. And he tells them, your seed, Abraham. And that's why we read that passage from Galatians 3. If you're in Christ's... What does He call you? You're Abraham's offspring. You're His seed. Why? Because Jesus Christ ultimately was His seed. And God promises to Abraham in Genesis, your seed is going to be a blessing to all nations. That your seed is going to rule all nations. That all the families of the earth, all of them is what it says, all of them will be blessed by God through this one seed, Jesus Christ. And you see, Israel... Israel is like this picture display in the Old Testament of what that's supposed to look like. Instead of it being the whole world, what are they supposed to do? They get redeemed by God. God calls them a son. And then he says, You're to go into this land. You're to root out all the evil. Just like Adam was to kick that serpent out of the garden, you're to come in and to kick all evil out of the land. And then I will dwell with you, just like he dwelled in the garden with his people. He'll walk among them. He'll be their God. They'll be his people. But what happens? Sin, just like in the garden, comes back into the land. And why does it come into the land? It's in here. Sin has dominion in the heart. So God promises, look, you're going to go in and you're going to fail because you need a new heart. But I'm promising you that there's going to be one to come that's like Moses but greater. Moses said, there's one coming that's greater than me. You're to listen to him. And then the whole Old Testament is this picture of God promising throughout all of Scripture. We read one right up here. I don't know if you noticed the psalm that was up here. Psalm 110.1 is a promise to David's offspring that his son will sit on the throne forever. And What does it say of him? It says, my Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, meaning rule, be enthroned until he does what? Makes all his enemies a footstool." Meaning He rules all of them. He conquers all of them. So the whole Old Testament, from the beginning to the end, of when it looks like none of these promises are going to come out, is this. God is going to bring about a Savior who's not just going to save individuals. Yes, He'll do that. But in doing so, He's going to reverse what Adam failed to do, and He's going to accomplish what Adam was supposed to do. And what is that? He's supposed to make the nations God's inheritance. All the families of the earth will be blessed. Everybody will come to know Jesus Christ through God's Son. And so Jesus Christ comes on the scene, and all of these things, they start proclaiming about Him, that this is God's Son, this is David's greater Son. And He starts proclaiming to them, repent for the kingdom of God, the one that we've been waiting a long time is at hand. And just like we were talking about that leaven, he speaks of this kingdom. He's like, this leaven, this, this kingdom is like a little leaven that gets put into a loaf and it permeates the whole loaf. Or it's like a mustard seed. It's a little seed at first, but as it gets planted into the ground, what does it spring up at? As a giant tree so that all the, ner- all the birds of the air come and rest on its branches. Referring to all of the nations. You see, church, the idea in Scripture is that God made... Men and women in his image to spread across the entire face of the earth so that his image would be over the whole earth and that the earth would be where God dwells, not just simply a land, not just simply a temple. And Jesus Christ is coming in in history now and accomplishing that now, which is why we're sitting here 2,000 years after he died as a small church. He is still progressively, and slowly accomplishing that goal. That goal that we talked about in Matthew 28, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus Christ. And he says what? Go therefore and make disciples of who? Some nations go and make disciples of all the nations. That's God's goal. That's where history is going. And that's where the church is going. You see, the church has been given birth to that very fact. And I'm going to read this last scripture and then we'll wrap up right here. But hear this one. This is God's goal in history. This is what everything's been made for. And this is the church's goal. So this is what Paul says. And he, speaking of Jesus, Jesus came and preached peace to you, speaking of you Gentiles, who were far off, and peace to those who were not near. You were also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the church has been made the means and the vehicle for by which God is accomplishing that one great task in history that all peoples would come and serve and worship God. As the text says in Isaiah, that God's glory would cover the land as the water covers the seas. Let me ask you the question where does the water not touch the sea? What does it not cover? nothing. The water always covers the sea. It covers every single part of it. So God's promise that he would do that, that it would cover all of the lands is sure to come about. That's what Jesus Christ is doing now. And let me tell you this, you have to tie this within within your identity. Because we have Lots of churches who will affirm the first two and they will give no credence to the last one. That the reason that they exist here as a church, the reason that they exist as men and women in God's image, redeemed by God, is so that goal would be accomplished. They don't believe it. And let me warn us of this too. There are men who say these words and yet don't act like it. So, we have an identity crisis problem because we simply do not believe this is our goal. So, let me ask you again who are you? Who are you? And will you find your identity in these things? Will you? Not just hear them, will you embrace them? Will you embrace them with simple obedience? And you expect God to bring about the fruit and the joy out of that simple obedience? Or do we think God to be a cruel father? Do we think Him to be a liar? Do we think ourselves to be wiser? Church, I beg you, find your identity in Jesus Christ first and foremost because He did it. And then go and live in this truth and go and live with that goal in your mind. And you, I guarantee, will find your identity. Let's pray.